Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're in week four of a series entitled Quiet, where we've been talking about having the quietest year of our lives. And I hope that you've been uh, applying what we've been learning and talking about over the last couple of weeks. This week, what we get to is the motivation. Why did Paul encourage the Christians in Thessalonica to aspire to live quietly? Let me give you the verse in a little bit more context. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at the end of verse 10. But we urge you, brothers, to do this, love each other more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So this phrase, aspire to live quietly, make it your ambition to have a quiet life. And if you haven't joined us, this word quiet has both internal and external ramifications. Internal, as in your rest, your peace, your your ceasing, no matter what's going on around you. And then externally, to have quiet in our relationships, which comes out of the next two lines, minding your own business and working with your hands. So we've explained those over the last couple of weeks. You can always catch up on podcasts if you haven't been here. But today we get to this question, why? Why live quietly? Paul gives us the answer. He says, so that you may, so that you may. Now, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, so that you may have your best life, so that you may get everything that you want, so that you may win. No, he says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. You see, this quest for quiet, it is good for us as individuals. It, it quiets our hearts. It helps our relationships. It gives us opportunity to connect with God. It is good for the corporate church when we live quietly. It advances the glory of God's name. But Paul gives this deep motivation so that you may walk properly before outsiders. Now, if you've been hanging around redemption for a season of time, you're familiar with this word walk, peripateo. We used it in our wisdom series last fall. This word means to intentionally move down a path. Here he's saying intentionally move down a path in front of outsiders. Now, this term outsiders might seem like a weird term. Well, what Paul is reminding the church at Thessalonica is that there are indeed insiders and outsiders. But what separates the insiders and the outsiders is different than what we might assume. In uh, the book of Romans, Paul had to remind them that what separates you, insiders and outsiders, is not your heritage. It's not your birth. There's not a birthright into the kingdom of God. It's not a nation thing. Other places, he reminds them that uh, what separates you is not how moral you are, not how hard you've worked, not how often you've attended church. No, what separates the in and the out, Romans makes clear, is faith. Faith. The way we say it around here is uh, redemption. We exist to help all people. There is not a type in the gospel. It's not just for a certain segment of society, a certain nation, in a certain time period. It is for all people to experience redemption, newness in Christ, and to live in freedom. Now, freedom from the past, freedom from religion, freedom from the law, freedom from fear, freedom from a lot of things. 
We exist to help all people experience redemption and live in freedom. The outsiders are then those who faith has not yet been active. But the only thing that separates us from the in and the out is that faith was awakened inside of us. We can't boast about it, the scripture says. If you boast about your salvation, then you don't understand your salvation. If you think you earned it, then you don't get it. If you think there's something special about you that doesn't relate to somebody else, then you don't understand the gospel yet. It's okay. I'll try to explain it as we go on through the day. So Paul does say, walk properly before outsiders because Romans 10 uh, seems to indicate that we have a role to play in the salvation of other people. It's through God's sovereignty and his plan as he plays it out. He uses us to advance his gospel sometimes through language, but it would appear here in 1 Thessalonians, it's by the way that we live. And so I want to look at three questions this morning, three questions that relate to quiet evangelism. Question number one is this, how is living quietly or how is quiet, how is it good evangelism? Let me give you two answers to that question. The first is the nature of, of the community or the nature of the church family. This is just the recap of our entire series. See, what Paul is doing is he's saying, church, live this way so that you may walk properly before outsiders so that you may win them to Christ. The idea is not to just walk properly before outsiders for the sake of walking properly before outsiders, but so that they might look in and say, I don't know what that is, but I want it. The nature of the church community is one of those things. So if we review our series thus far, what living quietly means for us as individuals and then for us collectively as a church body, he says, aspire to live quietly. Well, people who aspire to live quietly make it their ambition or make a plan to do it. So in this community that Paul is talking about, it's uh, people who have their priorities properly aligned. They know that the deepest love of their lives should be Christ. Then they properly align their priorities of uh, um, family and work and uh, community and friendship, and and they're aligned. In this community that Paul is talking about is a, um, a group of people who mind their own business. In this community, then, you don't have to worry about being found out. Like your, your deepest, darkest secret is uh, somehow going to make the community uh, turn away from you. In this community, then, you don't have to worry that people are um, over behind your back talking about you uh, because they heard this or they heard that, uh, gossip or slander. In this community, then, you, you can trust that when you, when you fall down, they Don't throw things at you on your way down. They pick you back up in this community. In the community that Paul is talking about here, uh, uh, people have learned to stop striving uh, by comparison. Instead, the the community has learned the beauty of contentment, uh, which means that when somebody else wins, you can celebrate along with them, not get jealous. And when somebody mourns, then you can come alongside them and mourn with them. It means that people don't lord over each other their wealth or their status, their intellect or their power, but instead in humility, serve one another. 
This is the community that Paul has been talking about, the quiet community. In this community, people work with their own hands. Oh, it means so much more than just having a a job. It means that in your season of drought, somebody else in their season of blessing has your back. That in this community, people literally wake up every day and they go to work, not just for their personal financial gain or to take care of their own families, but with you in mind. So that when you're afraid or when you're worried or when you're down and out, they're up and they're ready to step in and help. See, it was the nature of this community in the early church uh, that was one of the reasons that the, the Christian movement grew so quickly. It wasn't just the power of preaching. It wasn't just the miracles of the Holy Spirit. It was the outsiders looking in and saying, how do people live this way? How do they live so selflessly? How do they live with so much hope, even in the worst of circumstances? And they would say, I want into that. It's so counter to everything else that I see. And so the community grew. See, quiet When we, friends, are quiet towards each other, when we live quietly, it forms that community that other people say, I got to be a part of something like that. And then they come in and we introduce them to Jesus. We tell them, this is why we do all of this, because of Jesus. If redemption's your church, your home church, let me ask you, are you doing your part in that, in forming the community? Are the, the things that I just walked through, is that your mindset? Is that who you are in this body, in this family? We all have a role to play. How is quiet good evangelism? The, the second way, the first, the nature of the community. The second way, the integrity of the believers. The integrity of the believers. Uh, the apostle Peter weighs in on this a little bit later in the scriptures when he says this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, kind of another word for outsiders, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Instruction's pretty easy. Keep your conduct honorable. Keep it honorable. Do the right thing. Said another way, integrity matters. How is quiet good evangelism? The integrity of the believer who's just quietly living honorably in all spheres of life. Let's talk about a couple of those spheres. One, social media. Social media. Your platform on social media is not just extension of your own personal brand. If you carry the name of Christ, it is a reflection upon Jesus himself. And what you post, share, tweet, selfie, matters. Students, college students, singles, you maybe more than anyone else have an opportunity to um, show how Christ makes you honorable in your usage of social media. Instead of using it to just hook up or to send something you ought not to or to um, slide into somebody's DMs, I think that's a phrase, that you use it in a way that's honorable. That you reflect Christ 
in every message, every text, every pic, every comment, every post. It's a platform that we as Christ followers get to use to advance the gospel, not negatively reflect upon it. So here's one, social media. Uh, Another platform, let's just call it work. Whether you're the boss, the owner, or the employer, or the employee, every day at work, Scripture reminds us, you're not really working for that person. You're working for God. It was one of those ancient phrases in the Scripture written 2,000 years ago that is unbelievably relevant today. Paul could have probably never predicted the nature of work today, but the saying is still true. You and I, when we go to work, we work really, truly, ultimately for him. Let me burst your bubble real quick. You don't own a business. It's his. It's his. Which means how you operate, how you treat customers, how you treat employees, how you um, work fairly and, and, and pursuing justice matters immensely. You don't own a business. You are managing something for God. And when it's God's, you then operate using his values because it's his company. If you're an employee, the same is true. Stealing a little bit, cheating on your hours a little bit. You're stealing from him. You're cheating him. No, every day you go to work, you have an opportunity to reflect how Christ would run that company or work in that place. The integrity then of the believer, even to the demise sometime of profit or promotion, the integrity of the believer is to make other people look and go, I don't know how you live like this. I don't know how you live like this. You say, ah, let me share you. It's Christ. It's because I care about something more deeply than how much I make. And then you get to talk about Jesus. Third, third area. Uh, where we get to uh, show integrity. I'll just call it the public arena. This is everything from when you walk into the restaurant or the coffee shop or the movie theater or your kid's sports game or the parent-teacher conference or the nightclub. Are nightclubs still a thing? I don't even know. Every time you walk in, every game, every order of coffee, Every meal, you represent Christ. Paul gives us some encouragement. I don't know if it's encouragement or a challenge. In Colossians 4, 6, he says this, let your speech always be gracious. It would have been better had he said, most of the time, be gracious. It would have been easier, certainly. Let your speech always be gracious. When the ref blows the call, When the teacher has no clue what they're talking about, in your opinion. When your boss is telling you to do things that you know you don't need to do, really. When the coworker starts to gossip. When the waitress messes up your order. What a pagan. Wow. When the barista is slow. Let your speech always Always be gracious. 
See, what Paul is reminding us is this. When we put on the name of Christ, we no longer get to walk out of our house not in the name of Christ. We don't get to say, well, I'm just human like everybody else. We can use that as an excuse, but that's all it is. No, we are now in Christ. We are new creations. We are changed. We've been redeemed. How we interact in those situations is supposed to reflect the fact that Jesus has changed something in here. That your salvation is more important than my meal being cold. That what you think of Christians is more important than whether or not we win the game. The integrity of the believers living and walking quietly was was supposed to make people's heads turn and go, how do these Christians do this? It's because we've been changed. It's because Jesus changed me. So now I can do this. Now I can live quietly like this. That's how quiet is good evangelism. The nature of the community and the integrity of the believer. Uh, But there are obstacles to quiet evangelism. Let me give you two of them. There's many. I'm just going to focus on two today. Obstacle number one to quiet evangelism, self-promotion. It's really hard to be all about Jesus and all about yourself at the same time. John the Baptist knew this. So he said, I must decrease so that he may increase. Self-promotion is when we get confused about who matters most. See, in self-promotion, we live with the the mantra, I matter and you all exist to remind me that I matter. And so we align all of life around the idea of making sure that everyone knows how important we are. And we live in a culture that tells us, build your own brand. What's your personal brand? What's your personal mission statements? And we have all of these ideas and books. And I'm not saying all of that's bad, but it can get bad when we make it our main objective. And sometimes we even do this under the guise of Christ of, or of the church when it's just self-promotion, self-promotion, self-promotion. No, we exist to promote one person, one thing, and one name, Jesus. It's all that matters. I got into this conversation with a new friend, and it might sound like I'm picking on this friend, but I'm not really picking on this friend because I don't think he knows any better. But we were having this conversation, and he was telling me about how this and that person uh, and this and that organization changed their life. That was his word. This changed my life. This, this place uh, and, and this person, they changed my life. And this person was well-meaning, but I wanted to scream, no, they haven't. Not if you're talking about the way you're talking about. A person, a place, a thing can't change a life in this way. Only the gospel, only Jesus can really change the heart. Let me say it a different way. Redemption doesn't matter. I don't matter. God does. The gospel dies. Jesus dies. That's what's important. And so we live quietly to remind ourselves that uh, there's only one thing I want to make noise about. There's only one thing I want to promote, Christ and Christ crucified. Paul wrote in one of his letters, he was writing about these um, self-promoting teachers, right? 
guys who had you know, tens of thousands of followers on Instagram and everything else, and they wore the expensive sneakers, and they're really cool and popular. And Paul goes, they're preaching the gospel, so I'll just let them keep going. But I'm going to be over here reminding you that I only know one thing, Jesus and Jesus crucified. That's it. It's the only message that matters. And sometimes our self-promotion can be noise to an outside world that looks in and says, Christians or churches, they operate no different than any other brand building business. How is this any different? We have to remind ourselves always Jesus and only Jesus matters. Second way, second thing that can be an obstacle to, uh, to quiet evangelism is um, it's in my notes. That's why I write notes every once in a while. Noise making. Noise making. Let me tell you what noise making is. What do you do when you hear a loud noise? You either cover up or you run away, right? Hear a loud noise. No one hears a loud, obnoxious noise and goes, man, I want more of that. Noise-making is when we forget what's most important and we um, get secondary agendas and then we start to make a lot of noise over them. Most often, this happens in social media again. And what we do is, is, is we see these secondary agendas, whether it's a particular issue or it's politics or uh, it's this you know, little thing in your life. And what we do is we make all of these noise about these things. And, and I don't know what we're trying to do if we're just trying to prove a point or we're trying to show that we're winning or what. Um, but oftentimes, well, let me say it this way. Here's what I don't think ever happened. I don't think a post on Facebook has ever been shared that an outsider non-Christian said, you know what? Now now that you say it that way, I'm going to change my mind. Doesn't happen. Here's what typically happens in those situations. Unfollow. What I'm saying is this. Noise making makes people cover up or run away. And there's only one noise that I want to make that makes somebody cover up or run away. And that's the gospel. That's the God. That's it. I don't want anyone in my life running away from what's coming out of my mouth or the noise that I'm making for any issue other than the gospel. Are you following me? I'm saying all of the other secondary issues that we get excited about or make noise about on this earth in this world, in this time right now that repels people from us is detrimental to the advancement of the gospel. Because we start making noise about secondary things and they just go, and now we've lost the opportunity. And here's what's worse about it. Sometimes when people do that, we go, oh, look at that. They just, they just don't like truth and they're just rejecting the gospel. They're not rejecting the gospel. They're rejecting some secondary issue. But the rejection of that secondary issue is oftentimes now the thing that's stopping them from hearing the gospel. Jesus, he was asked, should I pay taxes to Caesar? And you all know his, his, his response, right? Yes, but only if he changes his tax policy and it more aligns with my supply side version 
and he doesn't infringe upon those you know, church rights in his tax policy. That's not what he said. He said, yeah, give Caesar what belongs to Caesar. It was a very cunning way of saying, just obey because none of this really matters. Let me tell you, Jesus, Jesus goes on, let me tell you what matters. Give to God what, it is, what is his. Give, it, give him what is his. So how, how do we, third question, how do we live intentionally quiet to evangelize? We learn from the master, Jesus. Jesus didn't complain. Jesus didn't make loud noises about anything other than his father. Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, his rights were infringed upon. He was beaten. And what did he do? He stayed quiet. Why? Because he knew what was most important, that he had to get to the cross. And then later, what does Jesus tell us to do? Actually, it was before this. What does Jesus tell us to do? He says, pick up your cross and follow me. So I think when Jesus was saying, pick up your cross and follow me, he was telling us, watch how I walk to the cross. And how did Jesus walk to the cross? Quietly. Giving up his rights. Not making noise about secondary things. Not letting anything else stop him from getting to that cross. And you know what happened? One of the people who was instructed to kill him at the end goes, wow, this must be the son of God. How do we intentionally live quietly? Well, I mean, we've gone over it. We refrain from meddling in other people's affairs. We mind our own business. We live stupid generously because we have different priorities. We don't gossip and slander. We let the church community get formed the way it ought to be. We have integrity and we act in honor in every way. We don't get uh, sidetracked in secondary issues. We have one mission, one message, Jesus and Jesus crucified. And we just keep saying it over and over. We just keep living it over and over. Do our rights get trampled on every once in a while? Sure. Might you get persecuted? Yeah. But as I look in scripture, rights getting trampled and Christians getting persecuted were two of the primary catalysts for the growth of the movement of Christ. So as I look at modern contemporary culture, as I look at the church in America, oh, I'd much rather have no rights and persecution and revival than all of the rights and a stale body of Christ. Would you? Quietly then, Paul is saying, this is so much more than just a, how do I get through a tough week? Now, when Paul says aspire to live quietly, what he's saying is, body of Christ, live in this way. Christians, live in this way. Keep your eyes focused on what's most important. 
Christ and Christ crucified. It's all we should know. Last week, I challenged all of us with this statement, to live a life where you maximize your gospel impact. I think I'm just going to keep coming back to this phrase because it realigns what our deepest priority ought to be. And here Paul tells us, you want to maximize it? Live quietly. It's good evangelism.